Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When Diplomacy Fails presents... The July Crisis Anniversary Project A day-by-day account of the events that occurred 100 years ago United We Stand Today is the 30th of July 2014 and on this day in history 100 years ago occurred the following events. It had been a revealing night for the Germans. Not only had they learned of Britain's inability to remain neutral, thanks to Sir Edward Grey, the British Foreign Secretary, but Berlin would also be informed shortly of Russia's duplicity that had duped the entirety of Europe to an unimaginable degree. It was Russia's own Foreign Minister, Sergei Sazanov, who had admitted to the German ambassador to Russia that Russia's mobilisation measures could no longer be reversed. This statement, coming from the mouth of the director of Russia's foreign policy, revealed in the plainest terms the Russian insincerity in the previous negotiations. If mobilisation was truly irreversible, then why did St. Petersburg engage in diplomatic proceedings which gave the impression that they wanted a peaceful solution to the now two-day-old war between Serbia and Austria? The answer to this, the German Chancellor would soon uphold, was for the sake of deception, to delay Germany's response to the circumstances, and to enable Russia to gain a head start in its own military measures. But if Sazanov's revelations were bad, then the note Wilhelm received from Tsar Nicholas II was even worse. Its author had claimed that, The military measures which have now come into force were decided five days ago. For the sake of, the Tsar claimed, Defence on account of Austria's preparations. However, both the German Chancellor and the German Kaiser knew that their ally had immobilised against Serbia, since they had been told that military contingency plans were addressed as late as the 29th of July to account only for Serbia, for the same reason that Germany did not advance its own limited military measures, neither member of the Central Powers wished to provoke Russia. The striking thing was, though, as Germany's incredulous Kaiser was discovering as he awoke just after 6am on the morning of the 30th of July, 1914, that Russia had never needed to be provoked, and that it had begun its military preparations, called a period preparatory to war, 
as early as the 25th of July on its own accord. The picture, as Wilhelm II saw it on the morning of Thursday the 30th of July, was that over the previous weekend, Russian statesmen had made the decision to mobilise, and that since then they had been increasing their preparedness while putting up a front of Pacific intentions while plotting, in secret, the downfall of the Central Powers. The reality of which had only been made apparent five days later. Wilhelm II, for all his faults, was in this case not that far off the mark. The policy of mobilisation in secret had been the policy of Sergei Sazonov, and since the decision had been made to begin the period preparatory to war in the years before, he had remained at the forefront of the war party that seemed determined to push for an extensive military response to Austria's war against its Serbian ally. Since Germany's neutrality could not be ensured, and since a military response was necessary, as had been emphasised time and again for the sake of the approval of Russia's populace and its international standing, the only course appeared to be a preparation for war. The question thereafter was how, not whether, the country should undertake the policy, once the war party had gotten their way. It is easy to read the situation as a sequence of events that the average person would have reacted better to. Was the Russian secret mobilisation, which in turn spurred other mobilisations on, really as necessary as Sazanov believed? To answer this, we must try to understand the Russian foreign minister's mindset, and why he believed that the only course left to his country, after news of Austria's ultimatum delivery and its subsequent rejection of the Serbian reply reached him. Though we follow the events on a largely day-to-day basis, it can often be difficult in formats like these to actually remember what occurred even a few days before. Such was the level of content and the weight of decisions that occurred within them. The Russian decision to launch its period preparatory to war in secret was one of the key points, perhaps THE key point, that led to the general breakdown of the diplomatic situation. However, it began as a process that could have been reversed. It was only after the declaration of war by Austria on the 28th that Russia entered the real road of no return. In response to the news, Sazanov had wired his representatives in Europe's major capitals and informed them that the next day Russia would announce its partial mobilisation in the military districts that adjoined Austria's borders. Even at this point though, a key element of Sazanov's policy was to ensure that Germany was assured of the absence on the part of Russia of any aggressive intentions regarding Germany. And this was in fact why Sazanov adopted for partial mobilisation. He didn't want Germany to partake in the war, even as late as the evening of the 28th of July when he sent out his telegram. This was thus the window, though the Germans didn't know it, that Berlin could have negotiated between the two, since Sazanov at this stage didn't see Germany as one of Russia's soon-to-be enemies in the upcoming war against Austria. However, Germany's Chancellor didn't know that this window existed. He didn't know until Portelay, the German ambassador to Russia, informed him the next day on the 29th that Russia was going to engage in any kind of mobilisation at all. So, Bethmann went on to scupper the plans for an ambitious halt in Belgrade proposal because he wouldn't allow room for negotiation on niggling Serbian issues with the ultimatum. Had he known what he knew the next day, Bethman may have tried to pursue a more effective and give-and-take version of the Halt in Belgrade proposal, which St. Petersburg at least would have to have considered. By the time of the 29th though, Russia as we have seen was close to launching general mobilisation, and only a miracle could pull it back from the precipice. Sergei Sazanov's view of the European situation 
upheld that Austria's policy was Berlin's policy, and that Germany had its hand firmly behind Austria, not just supporting, but in fact directing it towards a policy the Germans wanted. This meant that in the height of the crisis, Sazonov became convinced that there was no longer any point in mobilising just against Austria, because Austria and Germany were a bloc, and would stand together no matter the result. The decision to mobilise against Austria and Germany was thus formulated only in the evening of the 29th, after a long and stressful day in which Bethmann had sent two notable telegrams to Paris and St. Petersburg, and Serbia had come under attack from Austria. Bethmann thought he was reinforcing Sazonov with the conviction that a war with Austria would by default mean war with Germany, so the sensible thing to do would be to stand down. It wasn't worded in an aggressive way, it merely stated the facts, that because of the alliance system, Germany couldn't stand by if Russia moved against her ally. However, because of the news of Austria's shelling Belgrade had just reached him, the telegram declaring these facts was greeted with consternation by Sazonov, because for him it vindicated his belief that Germany was pushing Austria effectively to do its dirty work. The Austrian attack on Serbia, though an unfortunate coincidence for Ambassador Portolay, who had to face Sazonov's tone, appeared to the Russian like a demonstration of what Berlin was planning on doing. Austria, under German approval, was going to attack and possibly occupy Serbia. But here was a note from Germany, reminding Russia that it should keep out of events, or they could escalate. It was remarkably similar to the previous Bosnian crisis, or at least it seemed as though it was in Sazonov's mind. If you remember at that time, Austria occupied Bosnia-Herzegovina, which provoked a series of military actions, until Germany sent the St. Petersburg note to the Russian capital, and informed the Russians that they better stand down, or events would take their course. Sazonov had been around for that event, and had seen the results of it firsthand. Alexander Izvolsky, the Russian foreign minister at the time, was sacked and relocated to Paris as Russia's ambassador to France. For Sazonov then, it would have seemed like history repeating itself. Here was Austria again acting in the name of German ambition, and here was Germany again threatening Russian inaction. This time, though, Sazonov was determined to stay the course, and was even more convinced of the Austro-German solidarity in foreign adventures. Unlike the crisis of 1908-09, Sazonov was also confident of French support. It meant that this time, Sazonov was more than ready for events to take their course. Perhaps Sazonov believed he was responding to the Austro-German conspiracy he perceived in the Austrian shelling of Belgrade. Perhaps he believed that by engaging in an all-out mobilisation, he could parry the threat of the Central Powers. And perhaps he believed that unless he acted in such a way, it would be his job on the line, as it was his Volsky's in 1909. However, Sazonov's evolution as a previously weak-willed man, unwilling to make a strong decision, or stand too heavily on one side or the other, into this belligerent and determined repairer of war is significant whatever way one spins it, especially when coupled with the style of secrecy that Sazonov ensured his country operated in. As we saw last time, the apparent action urged by Sazonov ran headlong into the Tsar's hesitancy, and the letters between the Tsar and Kaiser that were to have such a profound effect on events. Sazonov got as far as getting Nicholas to proclaim general mobilisation, in effect, starting the countdown to war, in the evening of the 29th of July. It was only after receiving a reply to his earlier telegram that the Tsar got confused, hesitated, and cancelled the mobilisation order. A few hours later he was writing to Wilhelm again, 
this time probably inadvertently spilling the beans about Russia's extensive series of preparations. Though not mentioning the words period preparatory to war, its results would still be explosive, especially when combined with the dispatch of Portolais, who, after suffering Sazanov's lies for so long, bore witness to the foreign minister's semi-breakdown amidst a loss of temper. Sazanov, Portolais claimed, said that mobilization was underway, and that reversing it was no longer possible. Why then, Portolais must have wondered, did Russia continue to operate as though this wasn't the case? As it happened, July the 29th was the last day that Russia would behave like this. The fact that Russian duplicity had caught Germany effectively with its pants down was felt most intensely by Kaiser Wilhelm II. In the telegram Portolais sent back to Berlin, in which he told the Kaiser of Russia's plans to partially mobilise the military districts that faced Austria in response to the Austro-Serb war, Wilhelm, still smarting after just reading Nicholas's revealing telegram to him, scribbled furiously in the margin that Russian mobilisation measures According to the Tsar's telegram the 29th of July, actually had been ordered five days previously, that is, on the 24th, immediately after the delivery of the ultimatum to Serbia. Therefore, long before the Tsar first telegraphed me asking for mediation. His first telegram expressly said he would probably be compelled to take military measures which would lead to a European war. In reality, the measures were already in full swing, and he had simply been lying to me. I regard my mediation as mistaken, since, without waiting for it to take effect, the Tsar has, without a hint to me, been mobilising behind my back. Wilhelm's subsequent conviction that, this means I have to mobilise as well, was tempered somewhat by Bethmann's forwarding of the findings of Lichnowsky, Germany's ambassador to Britain. And Sir Edward Gray's claims, therein, that Britain would not stand by and do nothing in the event of a war between the two alliance blocs. Wanting to avoid war with Britain at all costs, Wilhelm endeavoured alongside Bethmann to write a reply to the Tsar. Unwilling to expose his true feelings, as though he certainly was livid, Wilhelm sought to present the facts to Nicholas and explain his ambassador's note of the previous day, which Sazanov had claimed was so contrary to Germany's previous stance. Wilhelm reminded the Tsar that Austria has only mobilised against Serbia, and only a part of her army. If, as is now the case, according to the communication, by you and your government, Russia mobilises against Austria, my role as a mediator, you have kindly entrusted me with, and which I accepted at your express prayer, will be endangered if not ruined. The whole weight of the decision lies solely on your shoulders now. You have to bear the responsibility for peace or war. That last loaded line was likely the work of Bethmann, who had worked alongside Wilhelm to draft an appropriate reply to Nicholas. Determined to place the responsibility for war on Russia's shoulders and to prove to London that Germany wasn't aggravating the situation, Bethmann thus left the issue of responsibility in Russia's hands. Or so he hoped. Bethmann was facing the definite ruin of his policies if war came. Since that could mean war against Britain that Bethmann had made it his life's work to prevent. He, along with Wilhelm, thus wanted to give Russia one more chance to back down from its course of action. The German chief of staff, Maltke, couldn't afford to be so patient though. Having originally approved these cautionary measures, he now became stressed at the idea of waiting, since if Russia continued in its course, it would be far past the point of mobilisation that the Schlieffen plan relied on. Even more than Wilhelm, Maltke was both shocked and furious to note that Russia had effectively gained a five-day head start in its pre-war preparations. 
What only added to his panic was the fact that the Austro-Hungarian Chief of Staff, Conrad, continued to plan and mobilise for war against Serbia only, leaving Germany, as it seemed to Malta, in a war against Russia alone. With France guaranteed to fulfil its own obligations to Russia, and with credible reports that French measures had already begun, Malta foresaw an entente destruction of Germany before she had the chance to prepare herself, and while her ally obliviously prepared a war against her minor enemy. Maltke pressed his concerns to Bethman in a meeting between the two at 1pm on this day 100 years ago, in which the Chief of Staff emphasised the need to announce Germany's full mobilisation and its own version of the Russian period preparatory to war. Though we don't know the complete list of topics that were discussed, Maltke would certainly have brought up his concerns about the need to put Germany on a war footing and Bethman would have refused, informing the Chief of Staff that he was still pushing the halt in Belgrade proposal of the previous days. Maltke then, in an act of gross insubordination, though in the process revealing facts that Austria-Hungary had a right to know, informed the Austrian military attaché in Berlin of the situation. This attaché reported back to Berchtold that Maltke was extremely agitated as I've never before seen him as well as telling the Austrian Minister for Foreign Affairs that Maltke says he regards the situation as critical if the Austro-Hungarian monarchy does not mobilise immediately against Russia. Russia's announced declaration concerning mobilisation she has ordered makes necessary countermeasures by Austria-Hungary and must also be cited in the public explanation. Standing firm in a European war is the last chance of saving Austria-Hungary. Germany will go with her unconditionally. In such a way was the news of Russian preparations passed on to Vienna. Maltke would not get his way though. Thursday did not bear witness either to Austria's shifting of its plans towards Russia or of Bethmann's announcement of German mobilisation. But time was clearly running out. Now the previously isolated Minister of War, Eric von Falkenhayn, had a like-minded ally in Maltke. And while Bethmann strived to give St. Petersburg one last chance to recant its policies and save the peace, time was running out for the German Peace Party. The facts were painting a picture for Germany's military minds that if she did not follow the road Russia had built soon, then she would not be able to fight in the upcoming war at all. The night before had borne witness to quite the drama in Paris. As the war minister was awoken from his bed after 2am on the 30th of July to be informed of a telegram Izvolsky had just received, courtesy of Sazanov, who was delicately dispensing information back in St. Petersburg. Sazanov recalled the meeting he had just had with the German ambassador Portelay, in which Sazanov had revealed that Russia's mobilisation could no longer be reversed. The German ambassador informed me of the decision of his government to mobilise its forces if Russia did not cease her military preparations. As we are unable to accede to Germany's desire, it only remains for us to hasten our armaments and regard war as imminent. Izvolsky recognised the significance of this cryptic message, and immediately dispatched Russia's military attaché to deliver the news to the sleeping war minister in the middle of the night. This caused a chain reaction, whereby the overwhelmed war minister telephoned the prime minister, who then telephoned the president. Good God! René Viviani exclaimed. These Russians are even worse insomniacs than they are drinkers! The emergency meeting took place at 4am, lasting through the night. 
Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. And no doubt pointed both French leaders towards the impending seriousness of the situation. Whatever Poincaré or Viviani had said to Russia in the days before about its support, they had to emphatically announce their support now, since time was clearly of the essence. Undoubtedly, for the shattered French leaders now rubbing the sleep from their eyes, the surprise coated news was not easy to take. One French statesman who was not surprised by the news, though, was the French ambassador to Russia, Maurice Paleologue, who had been in the loop and in fact was made aware of Russian mobilisation on Wednesday night as it was announced, only then to discover that it had been cancelled. Paleologue had not informed his government at home of the Russian fiasco that had occurred the night before, when Nicholas had eventually blocked the Russian general mobilisation order. However, though it is true that he should have informed Paris of these developments, Paleologue was not acting as a free agent. He was under orders from the French general staff to ensure that Russia mobilised against both Austria and Germany if it indeed did mobilise for the sake of French security. In addition, Paleologue was in communication with the French chief of staff and its minister of war, who may in turn have briefed the interested French president, Raymond Poincaré, of the developments of Russia's period preparatory to war. Thus, the murky picture Paleologue created back in Paris was deliberate. Though France knew in some way of Russian measures, and certainly knew more than the Central Powers, it did not know their full extent, and Paleologue knew he had to keep it that way, since such explosive news as general mobilisation would have to be delicately transmitted at an appropriate time. In other words, as Sazanov emphasised, at a time when the Russian actions were so far along that Paris could not stop them. But René Viviani was now on the case. Determined to not allow the situation to escalate, Sazanov perhaps would have found a strong veto to his proposals, 
had he revealed the Russian news sooner. But then, that was exactly why he had waited for so long. Still, so long as Russia awaited a definite declaration in favour of her policy, Viviani could afford to put his own slant on France's foreign policy. At 7am on Thursday morning, the 30th of July, after a fun-filled night of sleepless decisions, Viviani wired Paleolog about what he believed Sazanov meant by his message. He noted that Russia was clearly accounting on the support of her ally, France, and she considered it desirable that England would join France and Russia without further delay. Viviani urged Paleolog to tell Sazanov that France is resolved to fulfil all the obligations of the alliance, but in the interests of the general peace, and given that discussions are still underway among the less interested powers, I feel it would be desirable that, in the measures of precaution and defence to which Russia believes it must proceed, it does not immediately make any disposition that might offer Germany pretext for a total or partial mobilisation of its forces. Some historians have perceived this stance by Viviani as proof that French policy was willing to sacrifice the Russian alliance for the sake of peace. And certainly Viviani himself was very frustrated with the Russian style of doing things, as he complained to a colleague that the Russians are confronting us with fait accomplis and are hardly consulting us at all. However, another explanation was that Viviani was as mindful of gaining British support as Bethman was, and that he sought to prove in this case to Britain that France was indeed attempting to rein its ally in. Reflecting this, Viviani's reply to Sazanov was forwarded to London, where the French ambassador to Britain, Paul Cambon, was instructed to present it to Sir Edward Grey. Paul Cambon was enduring some of the hardest days of his life at the time. Ever since news of Austria's note to Belgrade, he had expected a European war. Though he had never fully supported Poincaré's encouragement of Russian Balkan commitments, he upheld the importance of the Franco-Russian Entente in the face of Austria's threat to Serbia. For Cambon, everything depended on Britain. In a meeting with Grey on the morning of the 28th of July, he pressed this argument. If once it were assumed that Britain would certainly stand aside from a European war, the chances of preserving peace will be very much imperiled. Once again, the French ambassador was attempting to deflect responsibility onto someone else, as everyone else sought to do the same thing at one time or another during the July crisis. According to Cambon, Britain's resourceful weight was needed to pressure Berlin against intervening to help Austria, which Cambon foresaw as the central issue. But Cambon saw the Anglo-French Entente differently than London did, he wishfully presumed that Britain saw the Entente as a chance to contain Germany, like France, whereas in reality, Britain saw the Entente as a chance to parry the threat to its far-off imperial territories by the means of a rapprochement with its major rivals in these theatres, namely France and Russia. Cambon was in fact regularly misled by the promises of Sir Arthur Nicholson, the Undersecretary for Foreign Affairs who was seriously attached to the Franco-Russian Entente and wanted to make it into an alliance. Although Nicholson was high up in British policy, he did not make all the decisions. In fact, a group of statesmen around Grey were responsible for this, and though Grey and Nicholson got along well, a rift was beginning to develop between them. Whereas Grey and his entourage were beginning to see the actions of Russia as detrimental to British interests and were becoming more disposed towards a policy of less hostility with Germany now that the naval race had effectively ended, Nicholson wanted to create the Triple Entente as a triple alliance, just as Cambon wanted. 
but Cambon's seeking of British approval was interwoven with Sir Edward Grey's own political problems, that being the issue of balancing the interventionists with the non-interventionists within London, and being thereafter able to form a coherent policy. Grey had actually failed to acquire approval from the Cabinet to intervene on the 27th of July, and he failed again on the 29th when he asked permission to issue the promise of aid to France. That July 29th meeting also saw the incredible rejection of the notion that Britain should intervene if anyone violated Belgian neutrality. The fact that Britain was a signee to guarantee Belgian neutrality was said to be significant because, the majority argued, the rest of the signee states were acquired to approve intervention too. Cambon's attempts to acquire British support were an ongoing battle for the Frenchmen, and we shall see its results in subsequent episodes. Despite the reply given by Viviani, Poincaré was determined to show his support for his allies' measures. In a telegram Izvolsky sent to Sazonov on Thursday morning, the Russian ambassador noted that the French government had no desire to intervene in our military preparations. The facts of the matter are strikingly plain. Just as Bethman was trying to heap the responsibility on Russia for starting the war, so too was Poincaré urging that the Russians not blow their cover in England by making Grey wise to their actions too early. Poincaré wanted Germany to appear the aggressor. That was the only way Britain would intervene on the part of France, so the Entente between them suggested. However, neither Germany nor Austria seemed likely at this moment to attack France, so Poincaré made sure that Sazonov knew he wasn't to act as the aggressor, though Sazonov was also well aware of this. Sazonov's awareness of the situation is reflected in the way he treated the British ambassador, Sir George Buchanan, not allowing him full access to the events that were going on, or enlightening him as to Russian mobilisation measures as he had Paleologue. Thankfully for Sazonov, Tsar Nicholas had prevented the escalation of events by his blocking of mobilisation, though Sazonov certainly didn't view this as a good thing when he awoke on the 30th of July. It had suggested that it was not too late to pull back and prevent a war. It also meant that Russia would not act aggressively in a way that provoked British opinion to stay neutral. However, as Sazonov well knew, Nicholas II was in the minority, and though the 29th of July had seen him win, the 30th was another day to pressure the outnumbered Tsar into the favoured course. Tsar Nicholas II would not make it easy for the Russian statesmen to change his mind. Convinced, as they were, that nothing but a strong response could save their regime, and that dithering or inaction, in the face of Austrian moves, would enable the central powers to have a free hand in the theatre, the decision to make war had already been arrived at by Sazonov two days earlier, when he had learned of the outbreak of the Austro-Serb War. However, the Tsar remained unsure of whether to make war or not. He had not the conviction to arrive at either decision and stand by it, with the result that his decision to cancel mobilisation the night before was seen as a tragic mistake for Russia, rather than the manifestation of the Tsar's conflicting character traits. Though he had cancelled the order, he remained conflicted, and thus vulnerable to influential officials, and he knew it, barricading himself in his palace and only speaking on the phone with the chief of staff and the war minister who all wanted mobilisation reordered. When the agricultural minister appealed to him on the phone and asked would he at least hear out the foreign minister, the Tsar eventually agreed. The two would meet at 3pm. It was a meeting that was to be significant for all the wrong reasons.
Having planned strategy beforehand, Sazonov knew his angle on what he was going to say before he entered the room. Huddling with the Russian VIPs, who all viewed mobilisation as essential, he had been apprised of the relevant facts, and was ready to tactfully and firmly confront his sovereign. Before going in to see him though, between 11am and noon he got a visit from the German ambassador Portelay, who had been informed the night before that the reversing of Russian mobilisation was no longer possible, and had since been left to stew in his own fermenting juices. Portelay was desperate to see Sazanov and implore him to help the mediation process. Sazanov said that Portelay appealed to me to hold out a last straw and make some suggestions which Portelay could telegraph to his government. Sazanov said he replied with the following solution. If Austria, recognising that the Austro-Serb question has assumed the character of a question of European interest, declared herself ready to eliminate from her ultimatum points which violate the sovereignty of Serbia, then Russia engages to stop her military preparations. This was a strange pledge to make, having only told the German the night before that the Russian mobilisation process could not be reversed. But Portelay was willing to accept that contradiction if it would indeed bring about peace. He noted optimistically in his report home that Sazanov had not made this secession of military actions a necessary part of the agreement, though he hadn't budged on the issue of the ultimatum points. What is most notable though is the fact that it was Germany's ambassador to Russia and not Russia's foreign minister who was begging to maintain the peace. Sazanov of course was already resolved to persuade the Tsar towards war, and his proposals can thus be considered a delaying tactic like so many other similar proposals he had made before. At noon, Sazanov met the British and French ambassadors, and prepared to paint a supremely dishonest picture of what had just occurred. Claiming that Portelay had broken down on the previous night and proclaimed war inevitable, and insisted that Sazanov only attempted his peace formula as the last straw, Sazanov depicted an incredibly different account of events that had transpired, and he wasn't done. Claiming to have Absolute proof of military and naval preparations being made by Germany against Russia, more especially in the direction of the Gulf of Finland, Sazanov made the case that Russia's intentions were peaceful, and that Germany, despite this, was seeking war. Sazanov never gave any proof for these accusations that Germany was seeking to move towards the Gulf of Finland, but then he never gave proof of Portelay's breakdown the previous night either, and yet none of this seemed to matter to the apparently gullible Buchanan and the in-the-know paleologue. Sazanov then launched with the Agricultural Minister and the War Minister, both of whom supported mobilisation and had been unable to change the Tsar's mind before. They prepped Sazanov even further for the later meeting. Moritz Schilling, who was also present, noted that the atmosphere was tense and the conversation was almost exclusively concerned with the necessity for insisting upon a general mobilisation at the earliest possible moment, in view of the inevitability of war with Germany, which every moment became clearer. When he returned to his own office to mentally prepare, he found the head of the Duma, Russia's parliament, waiting for him, and Sazanov received a message from him which read, As head of the representatives of the Russian people, neither we nor the people would forgive a delay which might precipitate the country into fatal confusion. After facing what amounted to a course of support that lined his route to the Tsar, Sazanov finally arrived at the Peterhof Palace to seek the support of the only individual that now mattered. In the room with Sazanov were the Tsar and General Tatischev, who was meant to be the Tsar's personal liaison to Wilhelm, having been recently appointed to the post, 
but who awkwardly now had to sit in on the meeting designed to bring about war, only to later report to Wilhelm falsely under the pretense of peace. Perhaps because he was aware of the contradictions of his posting, Tadaschev remained mostly silent throughout the meeting, though it is more likely that he was simply overwhelmed by the gravity of the situation, and had elected instead to allow Sazanov to do the talking, of which the foreign minister was prepared to do a lot of. It was Sazanov's later recalling of the meeting to Schilling that we have to work off. It was clear to everybody, Sazanov began, that Germany had decided to bring about a collision, or else she would not have rejected all the Pacific proposals that had been made and could easily have brought her ally to reason. Sazanov declared that, It was better to put away any fears that our warlike preparations might bring about a new war, and to continue these preparations carefully, rather than by reason of such fears to be taken unawares by war. It only remained, Sazanov concluded, in a similar vein to the argument he had included in his telegram to Izvolsky before, to do everything necessary to meet war fully armed under the most favourable conditions for ourselves. In response, the Tsar was said to appear deathly pale, and, in a choking voice, began, Just think of the responsibility you were asking me to assume. Remember, it is a question of sending thousands of men to their deaths. An awkward silence followed, broken to the surprise of Sazanov by the up-to-now-silent Tataschev, who added gravely, Yes, it is hard to decide. Nicholas thus put on a brave face and replied in a rough tone, I will decide! Shortly before 4pm on Thursday the 30th of July, Tsar Nicholas II flipped the switch back on for Russian mobilisation. Sazanov rushed down to the palace telephone, and informed the chief of staff that, Now, you can smash your telephone. A reference to the previous night, when the mobilisation order had been cancelled by that very communication method. This time, Sazanov and his entourage wanted to ensure that there would be no rescinding of the mobilisation order. This time, there would be no going back. The significance of the Russian action is often underappreciated by historians or those unaware of the sequence of events that had led to this point. More often fingers point to the assassination of the 28th of June or the declaration of war a month later as the beginning of the end for peace. Yet, in both those instances, had the endeavours for peace been pursued by all those involved with the same vigour, then war would not have come. The fact that it did can be traced back to Nicholas's pained decision to actually begin Russia's general mobilisation, which in effect meant Russia's countdown to war. According to the agreements made by the Franco-Russian general staffs, the joint offensives against Germany will begin 15 days after general mobilisation, which put the date for the beginning of hostilities as the 14th of August. Yet, even now, the countdown to war was not impervious to the efforts of those that wanted peace. July the 30th was the date that World War I stared Tsar Nicholas in the face, and though he could not have known its results or events, he already anticipated the suffering within it. Yet, he continued with the policy so favoured by his ministers, who were convinced to the end of Germany's intentions to pull the Balkans apart in Austria's name, and relegate Russia to a second-rate power in the process. So many signals from the other European capitals pointed against the widening of the war, yet it was this act by the Tsar that shouted louder than all those voices because of what it now suggested to those left behind. 
that Germany, in support of its ally, had to move against Russia, and France, in support of its ally, had to move against Germany. For better or worse, the alliances that had been signed decades before were soon to dictate whether war was made at all. Yet, they had existed for so long that they had ingrained themselves on the European culture, coming with them the idea that divided and isolated, a state would fall, but united, they would stand. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.